0: book in God's Word once again to Revelation chapter 13. Uh, we come to the first of, oh, trust, will be two sermons in Revelation chapter 13 as we want to look this evening at the first 10 verses. You know, if you were to ask our, our daughter Sarah what immediately comes to mind if you gave her the word beast, she would almost certainly say one of two things. It's either our van, which is known as the black beast. Or it would be Beauty and the Beast because she's very much enjoying that Disney tale these days. But if you were to ask the Apostle John what came to mind, if he thought about a beast, he's getting ready to tell us in this incredible picture in the first ten verses. So let me read them for us tonight and pray that our study would be blessed and will begin. So listen now as God speaks to us yet again through his perfect and powerful word. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. "...with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. The beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they worshipped the beast." And they worshipped the dragon, for they had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to conquer to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who is slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call. For the endurance and faith of the saints. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Now Father we do ask your help as we come to a majestic yet mysterious text. That you would help us to abound in perseverance. In faith and belief. Amidst the trials and temptations. Satan's schemes and strategies we might bear up under their weight. and so give great glory to you. So help us to hear this word, to keep it, and so find its blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What we tend to call the second persecution of Christians is a time period that you might date from AD 89 to 96, thereabouts. And it happened under the Roman emperor who was named Domitian. And the Apostle John lived during this second persecution of Domitian. There are many, perhaps, legends are certainly well-known tales that belong to John's apostolic ministry in the early 90s, the most famous of which comes from the pen of a 3rd century father named Tertullian. And in one of his works, Tertullian recalled of a time when the Apostle John was brought into the Roman Colosseum. He was thrown alive into a vat of boiling oil. And we're told that he left that boiling oil altogether unscathed. And Tertullian says that it was a miracle that was so powerful and so noted and mighty, there in the Colosseum, countless people immediately converted to Christ. And whether or not Tertullian's tale of the Apostle John is true is is debatable. That there was a great second persecution of Christians under a Roman emperor named Domitian is beyond debate. And the reason I tell you that is we come tonight to chapter 13, And what is a vision? I do think of that second persecution that belonged to first century Christians under the reign and rule of Domitian. It's a vision that is communicating the persecution that Satan continues to throw against God's people. It's doing so, however, with this grisly and grotesque and, and often gruesome imagery of a beast that rises from the sea. Let's make sure that we remember where we are in the course of this book before we dive into yet another one of these striking visions. If you've been with us in recent weeks, we've spent the last three weeks in chapter 12. Chapter 12, which is all about the cosmic war between the serpent named Satan, depicted there as a fiery red dragon, and then God's people. Those who love the Lord, keep His commandments and hold to His testimony. And what we saw is that Satan was excommunicated from heaven in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That He was cast out, the text tells us. And this was an expulsion from heaven that, that resulted in incredible praise going on in the heavenly scene above. But sounds of, of triumph immediately gave way to sounds of trembling. Because if you glance back to chapter 12, verse 12, you see at the end, if you remember, the heavens burst forth a, a warning. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And so what we're seeing is yet again another scene of what this war between Satan and the offspring of Christ looks like. And what Satan is doing in our text today is he's calling in reinforcements. He is summoning his troops, his great generals and battalions to march against God's people pictured in this image of the beast. And what I want you to see in our ten verses are two simple things. I want you to see a number of characteristics about the beast, so four in particular characteristics about the beast, and then the one call that belongs to the church in light of the beast's coming. So four characteristics about the beast, and then one call to the church. But where we left off last week, even though we didn't have an occasion and really much reason to comment on it, look at the end of verse 17, the end of chapter 12, verse 17. We're told that the dragon, kids, you remember who the dragon is? It's Satan. He stood on the sand of the sea, and that ought to strike you altogether ominous and threatening. Because kids, I would imagine if you think of standing on the sand of the sea, you might think about a time when your family has gone on vacation to a beach, uh, to an ocean or a lake or a sea. Maybe for you a seashore communicates rest and relaxation. But for the ancient people, the seashore, the sea was the place of evil. And chaos, that Satan is standing on the sand of the sea means surely something is going to burst forth that it's not going to be good. And that's quite clear. So the first truth you want to know about the beast is that the beast rules with power. Notice again verse 1 and 2 of chapter 13. John says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Students will notice in verse 2, he was like a leopard and and a bear, and a lion, all rolled up into one. This this fearsome foe of God's people is rising forth to wage war against God's people. And the initial question we, of course, ask to ask is, who is the beast, or what is the beast? Uh, Depending on your church background, you might belong to a tradition as you grew up, or maybe in recent years that ordinarily would say the beast is none other than the Antichrist that's going to come forth at the end of the age. And what's better, or certainly more helpful, in, in understanding this is recognizing the language of the beast. It just comes from Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7 pictures these beasts as idolatrous kingdoms, sinful empires. And so we need to understand, I do think, the beast as an idolatrous kingdom or a sinful empire belonging to that first century world in which John wrote. And so I do think the immediate reference of the beast is none other than the Roman Empire. And we're going to bear that out in a few ways in in just a second. A Roman Empire that sought to bring itself a claim that belonged to God alone and certainly uh, brought great persecution and war against the church. But uh, notice how the end of verse 2 underscores the beast's strength. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great Authority, all right? Simple truth number one, the beast rules the power. Number two, the beast receives worship, receives worship. Notice verse three as it continues. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound and its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? I think it's best to understand this mortal wound, if we're right, and I do think we are, in understanding the beast as immediately referring to the Roman Empire that warred against God's people in those early years of the early church. Uh, the mortal wound is, is most likely, and I think commentators uh, pretty largely agree with this, is that the mortal wound was, was basically this uh, apparent strike against Rome that came when Nero died in 68. 68. A.D. Because you might know uh, Emperor Nero's story. Students, you might have been familiar with or heard of Emperor Nero who with unusual violence and particular venom, he, he warred against the church to such a degree he delighted in crucifying Christians. Sometimes he didn't even want to crucify them. What he would do is strap them to a pole and light them on fire so they might be torches to light the night for the amusement of Roman citizens. And so for Christians living in the world at that time, they understood the Roman empire to be completely against them in violence but then Nero dies and there seems to be this respite of sorts with what is about the next 20 years of life Christians living in the Roman Empire and then it's in the late 80s that this man named Domitian rises again struck a mortal wound But it rises again to pronounce power and and persecution against the church. As I mentioned at the beginning, this second persecution of Christians. And no doubt there was a time in which a Roman Empire was worshipped in divine religious language. You're supposed to worship the Roman Emperor as a god himself. That you you were supposed to, as a good citizen, to even be able to say who is like the beast, who is like Rome, and who can stand and fight against it. This kind of religious allegiance. Belongs to the beast's reputation. Truth number three. The beast ridicules the truth. The beast ridicules the truth. Look at verse 5 and 6. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth utter blasphemies against God. Blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven kids, you, you might remember, I hope you do remember what this, this number and phrase of 42 months represents because it's shown up a bunch in the book of Revelation. 42 months or 1,260 days. And we've said over and over that it just represents the, the period of the church's life between the comings of Christ, meaning his, his coming to heaven in his ascension and his coming from heaven at the last day. That the beast, Satan's, General, if you will, is going to continue to war against the church throughout the ages. And I do believe it's thus right for us to understand that what you have throughout the ages is these political empires, these worldly kingdoms and powers rising up and warring against the church. Do you not even think that there might be some in the world today that embody the beast as it's depicted here in Revelation chapter 13? One of the more notable times in recent memory in our world was in World War II with Hitler's Nazi Germany. Uh, They accrued to themselves these world powers, uh, not just power and strength and a desire to kill and crush the church, uh, but, but language that is utterly full of blasphemy. So in Hitler's reign there in Nazi Germany, he would recruit young teenage boys into Hitler's youth army. And here's the song, or at least the first few phrases, from the song that they had to learn. And tell me if this doesn't sound like beasts, blasphemy. We are the happy Hitler youth. We have no need for Christian virtue for Adolf Hitler is our intercessor and our redeemer. No priest, no evil one, can keep us from feeling like Hitler's children. No Christ do we follow but horse the vessel, which is a German figure of great significance in Hitler's Nazi party. But of course, there is the beast rising, ridiculing the truth. And I hope students, you're paying attention if you've been with us over these weeks in Revelation. I hope you're realizing that Satan's preferred tactic, it seems like according to this book, and surely it's true according to all of scripture, is falsehood, it's error, it's it's false teaching, Over and over, he's trying to swallow up, drown the church with its deceptive teaching. And I wonder if you might have even bitten an apple of false teaching in your life and perhaps not even realized it. So subtle is Satan's temptation against you as he and his beast ridicule the truth. So, number one, rules with power. Number two, receives worship. Number three, the beast ridicules the truth. Number four, the beast reigns over unbelievers. Reigns over unbelievers. Believers, look at verse 7 and 8. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. An authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Satan wants nothing, does he, other than universal control and universal allegiance. At this time in that ancient world, the Roman Empire seemed to have universal control to the known world at the time, universal allegiance. And importantly, don't miss how who is worshipping the beast and the dragon as those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life. And we see, yet again, Revelation keeps bringing these same images to mind, doesn't it? This Lamb's book of life. Which reminds us that you're going to be written down in a book. The Lamb's book of salvation or the Lamb's book of destruction. Or pictured more pointedly according to Revelation. You must be written down in a book. If you are to enjoy eternal life. And if you're not. What belongs to you is not life and forgiveness. And everlasting blessedness. Pictured here it's just worship of the beast. It's submitting to the one who rules over and reigns over unbelievers. So these are the characteristics of the beast. He rules with power. He receives worship. Ridicules the truth. And reigns over unbelievers. Well, there's something else that's utterly important you need to see about this portrayal of the beast. A few years ago, a world-famous director released a movie on one of the more notorious counterfeiters in U.S. history, a man named Frank Abagnale. And he was this master impersonator and counterfeiter. He swindled people out of thousands and thousands of dollars, effortlessly portraying a Pan Am Airlines pilot, a a Georgia doctor, or even a Louisiana parish prosecutor. So trained was he in counterfeits and subtleties that he was even hired by our government to be able to track down other such counterfeiters. And the reason I tell you that is because what we have here in Revelation chapter 13 is Satan's parody of the Trinity beginning to take place. Because you need to see how strikingly in just even these first eight verses, what you see Satan doing is offering what really isn't even a subtle attempt to parrot the Father and the Son. Next week with the second beast, we add the Spirit in there as well. So notice, what you have at the beginning of this chapter is Satan... Himself, the dragon, portrayed as though he is God the Father. He's creating from the chaos of waters his image, who is the beast. And the beast comes forth, which is this satanic parody and counterfeit of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because if you just glance down at the verses there, and you even have revelation language in the back of your mind, notice uh, these similarities between the beast and the Lord Jesus Christ. The beast has ten crowns. Revelation 19 tells us Christ has many crowns. The beast has blasphemous names written on him. Revelation 19 says Jesus has worthy names written on him. You see, of course, the dragon gave the beast authority and power and a throne. Does not the Father give Jesus authority, power, and a throne? The beast, strikingly, has a fatal wound which counterfeits Christ's resurrection. Because his healing is one of the features according to Revelation 13. The beast's healing is one of his features that attracts his followers. Isn't it true that the Lord's rising is that central gospel truth we even reflected on this morning that attracts worldwide worship as it. Ought to. Worship is, of course, directed to both the dragon and the beast, just as worship is uh, directed to the Father and the Son. The beast attracts the worship of the whole world, just as Jesus Christ is to be worshipped universally. The beast utters blasphemies, while Christ utters praises. The beast makes war against the saints, while Christ makes war against the beast. The beast is rising, and it's little more than a demonic parody and counterfeit of the Holy Trinity and you'll see next week it comes complete when the second beast arrives along the way. So if these are the characteristics of the beast, this is the counterfeit of Satan's strategy. What then is the one call to the church? Well, that comes in verse 9 and 10. Notice how verse 9 begins. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now students, can you think about a time that we've heard those phrases in the book of Revelation? That's how each one of the seven letters to the churches back in chapter 2 and 3 ended. And those letters came from Jesus Christ, these urgent and clear words. So we must then think, if it shows up again, these phrases in verse 9, urgent and clear words are getting ready to come. And what comes? Look at the beginning of verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Of course, as the original hearers of John's Apocalypse would have heard this, they would have understand the reality of what's being said here, yes, some of us are going to be imprisoned for our holding to Christ's testimony. Yes, indeed, some of us are going to even be slain for keeping God's commandments, such is the violence and the vehemence of the beast as he wars against the church. And so then be not surprised as you evaluate and even analyze church history that this seems, doesn't it, to have almost like a cyclical reality in the church's experience. Even now it is in other places in the world that the beast is rising against the church where individuals are imprisoned. Individuals more than we often even realize in North America. Christian brothers and sisters around the world being slain for their faith. He who has an ear, let him hear. The beast's power and persecution is coming. So the call then is how we end at the end of verse 10. Look at what it says. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Another time in history when I do think the beast rose was in the 1550s in England uh, when a monarch named Bloody Mary was trying to eradicate Protestant gospel truth from the land. And what she ended up doing, which was almost a holocaust for the time, is round up uh, hundreds of pastors and noted church leaders who were preaching the truth of Jesus Christ, and she would burn them at the stake. And two of the most famous Marian martyrs were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, these two brilliant preachers in England at the time. They were close friends, and they were actually martyred. They were executed on the same day, right next to each other, They were strapped to these poles, and kids, you can picture this this firewood being set all around them, because soon enough, they were going to be lit up as a flame, that their flesh would be consumed, such was their offense for preaching the gospel. And famously, what happened even that day is that Hugh Latimer looked over across the way, it's the final recorded words that we have, and he said, be of good cheer, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. So in other words, endure and believe. Be strong. We shall light this day such a candle that by God's grace in England, I trust, shall never be put out. And you would have a good reason, maybe even this year, to read stories, good accounts of Christian martyrs that kept to the call of our text. Because as we close, let's just notice the two parts of that call. We resist the beast. So what's the call? The call is to resist the beast. How do we do that? Number one, we resist By enduring. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. In the original language, the word there for endure just means more literally to remain under. And certainly in our time, we don't face this kind of persecution, do we? But I think it is necessary and even good for us tonight to consider what kind of satanic strategies, devil's temptations and trials might come our way that we're meant to remain under to endure. I wonder if by God's strength you're bearing up underneath them. How even can you bear up underneath them? I think that's really the second part, isn't it? We resist the beast by believing is what it says. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. How is it that Christian martyrs from the first century on can face these satanic attacks with striking courage? An altogether compelling bravery. That's because they're enduring in faith. They know that Revelation twelve is true. That Jesus already has cast out Satan. They know that Satan no longer has a hold on them. He no longer is able to make an accusation against them. They know that Satan already has suffered that mortal wound from which he's never going to recover. Of course, even as we think about uniquely on this day, they know that Jesus Christ has risen. That has broken Satan's chains. Satan lost the keys of death and Hades because Jesus took them back for himself. That's enduring and believing. That's knowing that things are going to get better, that Christ has conquered, that the victory is on the way. So yes, you might be thrown into prison. Yes, you, you might be slain. But this is not the end. For Christ Jesus has already won. So the call is for you, I, I know, in one way or another in your life, even this day. The call is to resist the beast by enduring, to resist the beast by believing, as we know, don't we, that Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him, he who is the author of our faith, endured the shame of the cross, that he might bring you and me sinners unworthy of his grace, but only by his mercy into God's eternal favor. And so join him in the victory march of defeating the beast. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would give us strength, that you would help us indeed to war against the Satan this week with the fullness of Christ's armor. That we might walk wisely in these evil days with hope and with faith and love, always enduring, always believing, always clinging to the conquering power that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we pray all of these things in his wonderful name. Amen.